earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends, and thank you for joining me today. Today is part four in our series, Scrutinizing Scripture. Can we believe our Bible? Last time in part three, the book of books reveals the savior of saviors. We let our fingers do the walking through some provocative statements made in both the Old and New Testaments. These statements, these Bible verses, revealed why we can talk about God in a generic sense and nobody seems to get bent out of shape. But as soon as we bring up the Judeo-Christian God of the Bible, or worse, Jesus Christ, people naturally get defensive. We saw that the God and Savior of the Old Testament becomes the God and Savior of the New Testament. We also saw that it's easy for people to talk freely about God these days because using the generic word God, people can attach whatever meaning they want to the generic concept of God. I also shared a memorable phrase I learned in Bible college, the scandal of particularity, which nicely summarizes a paragraph of information, that being, it's a scandal to the human mind that God would choose to reveal himself at one particular time in history, and in only one particular person, the person Jesus Christ. That scandal was felt way back in the first century by the Jewish religious leaders when the Jews were under the oppressive hand of the Roman Empire, longing for a messianic deliverer. In John five sixteen through 18, John records their response to Jesus' teaching. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, friends, their Hebrew scriptures predicted a coming Messiah and even taught that this Messiah would be God himself. Zechariah 9.9 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. In Isaiah 43.15, God says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. And in 44.6 we read, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Friends, it was common knowledge that Israel's God was Israel's king. In fact, one of the most amazing declarations ever made was when Jesus first called disciples to follow him. In John 1, 43-49, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. This is the Nathaniel who said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Just a few breaths later, when Jesus acknowledged seeing him, Nathanael declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Whoa! A nice young Jewish boy brought up believing that the God of the Jews was also their King, now declaring that Jesus was the King of Israel. So, last time I said that the first century question remains the 21st century question. Who do people say Jesus is? Well, friends, today's part four is, so how's your circulation? And you know what? We're living in a unique time where Christian fiction is making its mark, not just among avid Christian book readers, but among mainstream book enthusiasts, too. This became glaringly evident back in 1995, when the first Left Behind novel was published. Not long after its release, the staggering statistic regarding its circulation put its distribution at the 50 million mark. Well, friends, imagine with me for a moment another religious work with 66 chapters and begun by a single writer. But after the author completes just the first five chapters, he suddenly dies. But during the next 1,000 years, some 30 amateur freelance writers felt constrained to continue this religious work. Few of these freelance authors shared anything in common. After all, some spoke different languages, and they lived at different times and in different countries. They even had totally different backgrounds and occupations, even different writing styles. Furthermore, imagine, friends, that when the 39th chapter was finished, for no apparent reason the writing suddenly stopped. Not one word, page, or chapter is added for some 400 years, but surprisingly and amazingly. The writing continues after this long break. Eight new authors pick up the manuscript and add the final 27 chapters. Now, friends, with all this in mind, what do you think would be the chances that this religious work would become a moral, scientific, prophetic, and historical unity? You should answer, not one in a million and yet, friends, this is precisely the story of the formation of the Bible. Is it any wonder that the Bible we now hold in our hands has been dubbed the Book of Books? And rightly so, friends, we can be confident in this book of books. And let me add a personal note here, because I want to make absolutely certain that you don't mistakenly view what I'm sharing in this series as mere information. Because this information may at first seem to have little bearing on or connection to our everyday life. In other words, our everyday toilsome existence. But nothing could be further from the truth. There's a reason why I shared earlier that we can be confident in this book of books. You see, friends, whether we're willing to admit it or not, the degree of confidence we place in this book is directly proportional to the degree of confidence we place in the God of this book. 
Our generation has seen the advent and the hammering of such disciplines as higher criticism and liberal theology. These have infiltrated our thinking patterns and have subtly eroded our confidence in this book and the degree of authority it holds in our lives. And on top of that, our society has been increasingly characterized by tolerance and waving the banner that truth is relative. You know, true for you but not for me mindset. Allow me to just recall one doctrinal summary statement from last time, what I and my denomination believe about the Bible. We believe the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, is the inspired and authoritative written word of God. We believe the Bible is entirely trustworthy in all that it teaches and reveals, that we are obligated to obey its teaching, and that all our doctrines and practices are subject to its authority. And friends, recall that I said statements like this represent a dangerous declaration, especially nowadays in our age of tolerance and relativism. It's becoming increasingly difficult for us Christ followers to not appear like intolerant bigots when we attempt to defend the Bible and confidently assert that there really is absolute truth. And sometimes it's helpful to examine what the Bible actually claims for itself, because the Bible claims divine inspiration and authority in several places. One key place is 2 Timothy 3, 10-17. Now Timothy, who happens to be the pastor of the church in Ephesus, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, persecutions, and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." But evil people and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings or the holy scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and is beneficial or useful for teaching, for rebuking or reprimanding, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable or thoroughly equipped for every good work. Friends, this last verse, verse 16, is just one of many Bible verses that supplies the motivation for carefully preserving, copying, and circulating God's Word. After all, don't we want everyone to be able to hear, read, and understand the Bible in their own language? Another important motivation is the competition we face. There are other religious systems and worldviews abounding out there. 
competing for our attention, attempting to capture the minds and hearts of millions. Friends, a handful of these religious systems have their own books that make their own claims as well. Let's listen to a few. In the Quran, we read in the preface, in part, Quran Majid is the textbook of Islam and comprehends the complete code of the Muslims to live a good, chaste, abundant, and rewarding life in obedience to the commandments of Allah in this life and to gain salvation in the next. It is the chart of life for every Muslim and it is the constitution of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It is also for them a compass in the turbulent voyage of life. In the Book of Mormon, we read in the opening paragraph of the introduction, the Book of Mormon is a volume of holy scripture comparable to the Bible. It is a record of God's dealings with ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains, as does the Bible, the fullness of the everlasting gospel. In the Jehovah's Witnesses' own Bible, the second paragraph of the foreword says, The translators of this work, who fear and love the divine author of the Holy Scriptures, feel toward him a special responsibility to transmit his thoughts and declarations as accurately as possible. They also feel a responsibility toward the searching readers, who depend upon a translation of the inspired word of the Most High God for their everlasting salvation. In the Eastern sacred writings known as the Bhagavad Gita, the back dust jacket says in part, Bhagavad Gita is universally renowned as the jewel of India's spiritual wisdom, spoken by Lord Sri Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, to his intimate devotee Arjuna. The Gita's 700 concise verses provide a definitive guide to the science of self-realization. Indeed, there is no work even comparable in its revelations of man's essential nature, his environment, and ultimately his relationship with God. You see, friends, as important and as powerful as our testimonies are, in and of themselves they can sometimes fall short of convincing others of the uniqueness of the Bible, its revelation, and the Christian belief system. Now, don't misunderstand me. Our personal testimonies, in other words, our own life-changing stories, are important. But for people whose lives are steeped in other religious belief systems, testimonies won't stand on their own. Let me tell you why, friends, from a personal experience. When I was in the corporate world, commuting back and forth to New York's Port Authority, I met and talked with a number of Hare Krishna followers. They handed out literature and talked with passers-by. In fact, that's how I got my copy of their book, the Bhagavad Gita. They would tell me over and over again how they have a personal relationship with the Lord Krishna and what he has done for them and how he has changed their lives. Sound familiar? It ends up many times just becoming a battle of the testimonies. Friends, the only way to break a stalemate of testimonies is to apply objective, absolute standards by which one's testimony can be tested. Otherwise, we remain deadlocked in the realm of relativity and back and forth defending why our or their testimony is more valid. 
We Christ followers sometimes forget that our testimony doesn't validate the word of God. The word of God validates our testimony. So our experiences are validated by the Bible's truths, since the word of God is objectively and absolutely true. As I shared earlier, friends, the Bible itself furnishes the motivation for Christ followers down through the ages to preserve, copy, and circulate the Bible. Jesus' own words should be motivating enough. At the close of Matthew's gospel, he commissioned his disciples with, Go and make disciples of all the nations. And at the close of Mark's gospel, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And we certainly can't forget Jesus' parting words in Acts 1.8, just before he ascended into heaven. You should be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now friends, consider this. If each of us gave out a Bible or scripture portion to a person every five seconds, it would take more than 92 years to accomplish what the United Bible Societies have done in a year. Well, before we take a look at the miraculous circulation and distribution of the Bible and scripture portions through the United Bible Societies, let's just take a moment and review where we've come thus far. Our overarching goal in this series was to increase our confidence in the Bible, the book of books. We want to take seriously the Bible's admonition in 1 Peter 3.15. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you to give an account of the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Recall that the phrase, make a defense, is where we get our English word apologetics. And this doesn't mean apologizing for our belief, but rather learning things about the Bible with the goal of equipping ourselves to defend the Bible's authenticity and its truth claims. So, in part one, we saw the uniqueness of the Bible in that it's been the greatest influencer for good in the Western world. We saw how it's impacted the family, employer-employee relationships, discrimination, crime and punishment, humanitarianism, government, education, art, and music. Here we ask the ultimate question, what is truth? And examine the Bible's claims to objective, absolute truth. In part two, we saw the uniqueness of the Bible in its continuity from Genesis to Revelation. We saw that in spite of the fact that the Bible was written and compiled over 1,500 years by over 40 authors in three languages and on three continents, there is astonishingly one theme that runs through its pages from beginning to end. The theme of redemption. God's plan to redeem or save humans who had a falling out with him. Each of the 66 books in the Bible make a unique and special contribution to and embellish upon that theme. In part three, we saw the uniqueness of the Bible in that it claims to reveal the Savior of Saviors. In fact, the Savior of the world, the God-man, Jesus Christ. In John chapter four, during Jesus' visit with the Samaritan woman at the well, the people from nearby Sychar came to hear Jesus and concluded, It's no longer because of what you said, the Samaritan woman, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one truly is the Savior of the world. 
Well, today in part four, we'll zero in on the motivation behind copying, circulating, and distributing this unique book of books to all peoples throughout the world and the uniqueness of this circulating of the Bible. Let's first glean some facts about book circulation in general. Many books make the bestseller list selling a few hundred thousand copies. Occasionally there are books that sell over a million copies. It's rare if a book passes the 10 million mark in sales. Now, here's some amazing facts about the Bible's circulation. The number of Bibles sold now reaches into the billions. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book. More copies of the Bible or Bible portions have been produced than any other book in history. The first major book printing on a printing press, the Gutenberg Press, in 1455 was the Latin Vulgate Bible. Before the invention of the printing press, the Bible was copied by hand with extreme accuracy, contrary to popular opinion, in many cases by special scribes who developed intricate methods of counting letters and words to ensure that no error was made. Of the thousands of copies made by hand before A.D. 1500, more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts from the New Testament alone still exist today. The Bible text is better preserved than the writings of Caesar, Plato, or Aristotle. The evidence shows that the Bible we have today, particularly the New Testament, is 99.5% true to the original writings. The Bible holds the record of having the most handwritten copies surviving from ancient times. The Bible is the first religious book to be taken into outer space on microfilm by the astronauts. In 1933, the English government paid Russia $510,000 for an ancient Greek copy of the Bible, the highest price paid for any book at the time. On May 22, 1881, the world's longest telegram contained the text of the New Testament from New York to Chicago, where it was printed in its entirety in the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Sun-Times. Friends, this vast number of statistics are all the more amazing in light of the many attempts to destroy the Bible since it was written. The earliest attempt was in 303 AD when Emperor Diocletian commanded that all Bibles be burned. And during Diocletian's reign, thousands of Christ followers were imprisoned, burned at the stake, or tortured to death rather than recant their faith in the living and written word of God. Now, friends, I admit that the information I'm sharing today alone won't prove that the Bible is the Word of God. But it clearly demonstrates that the Bible is unique among all books, religious and non-religious. However, these very facts may help to clear away obstacles to faith that people erect and show that faith in Jesus Christ is reasonable. I know it's one thing to claim God authored the Bible and another to prove it, but not only does the Bible have an amazing internal consistency and continuity, it has external evidences of its accuracy from the realms of history, archaeology, literature, and science. Stanley Greenslade in his book, The Cambridge History of the Bible, remarked, No other book has known anything approaching the Bible's constant circulation. 
Okay, friends, according to reports, the Bhagavad Gita has had 150,000 copies distributed. The Book of Mormon, as of 2011, had published 150 million in 110 languages. The Jehovah's Witness Bible, as of September 2020, has distributed 220 million in 193 languages. The Bible, as of 2016, with only 200 Bible societies reporting in 200 countries, distributed 401.4 million, but has served 4 billion people with scripture portions in 1,515 languages, and has distributed 4.3 billion complete New Testaments. So, friends, let me ask you, how's your circulation? Do you remember the saying, you may be the only Bible a person ever reads? That may be true, but that's certainly no excuse for not sharing God's word with the people around us. Voltaire, the French writer and philosopher, died in 1778. He was an avowed non-believer and, in fact, boldly announced that a hundred years from his lifetime, Christianity would become extinct and pass from history. Yet, just 50 years after he died, the Geneva Bible Society set up shop in his house, producing and distributing Bibles. Well, a person looking for truth should certainly consider a book that has all the qualifications we've seen today. Amen? Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening today, friends, and remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.